Hello, you're listening to On Israel in a Monitor. I'm Ben Katsky from Tel Aviv. While this podcast is being recorded, Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid are waging a desperate battle to save the government. This time, their fragile coalition is under threat by last week's resignation of a Knesset member from the left-wing Meretz party, Raida Rinawi Zoabi. Just last month, their coalition seemed on the verge of collapse after the resignation of Knesset member Edith Zilman from the Prime Minister's right-wing Yamina party. Renawi Zoabi's move stunned the political arena, including the leader and members of her own party. Whereas uh, Zilman's resignation robbed the coalition of its one-seat Knesset majority and left it tied with the opposition, Renawi Zoabi's move took the coalition down to 59 seats in the 120-seat Knesset. Right now, when I'm recording this uh, paragraph, Renawi Zoabi announced she's coming back to the coalition. Lapid and Bennett aren't giving up just yet. Since announcing that uh, she was quitting the coalition, Renawi Zoabi has come under intense pressure. She has already announced that she wouldn't support the opposition uh, next week when in the, it introduces a motion to disband the Knesset. But looking beyond next week's vote, the prospects of the government's uh, survival are grim. Rinawi Zoabi's move could inspire others to jump from, this, uh, from what seems to be a sinking ship. Today's On Israel guest is a senior member of Yeshatit, the centrist party headed by uh, alternate prime minister and foreign minister Yair Lapid, and the second biggest party in the Knesset. Deputy Foreign Minister Idan Rol is among the leaders of Israel's LG, uh, LBGT community. He is married to popular singer Harel Scott and is the first Knesset member to ever employ a transgender assistant. His uh, resume includes a stint as a model, a lawyer, and a military intelligence officer. These days, he's leading Israel's public diplomacy campaigns around the world, try, trying to bring about the conceptual and strategic change in the way Israel explains its policies, especially on such crucial issues as terrorist attacks and military operations. Deputy Foreign Minister Dan Roll joins us right after this short break. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it. This past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. Now I'm happy and privileged to uh, announce and to welcome 
to our show, Deputy Foreign Minister Idan Rol. Shalom Idan, thank you for joining us, joining us here in Al Monitor. And how are you doing? Hi Ben, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm doing great, thank you. It's our pleasure. Let's, uh, let's talk business. We are, uh, of course, in the middle of yet another political drama. The shock resignation of Knesset member Rinawi Zoabi could easily bring down your government and result in elections. In the meantime, she's taking a step back and seems to be showing signs of remorse. But how sure are you that Lapid can keep her in check and avoid the government's collapse? Well, I think that um, her potential, or maybe for now temporary resignation of, uh, of MK Zoabi is, has a bigger impact than actually the coalition, and the coalition is you know, quite big of an impact for us. But I think that if she decides to quit, in a way it will um, jeopardize or shine a, a light about our efforts to create an, you know, a genuine partnership between uh, Jews and Arabs in the government, in the coalition. And um, I, would I would really be disappointed to see that conditions are not yet ripe for such a partnership, such a partnership story. And we are determined to, to make it work. And we're determined to show the Israeli society, which is a very diverse society, that this so-called experiment is is an is you know is an experiment a successful one of historical proportions and obviously there are many obstacles but i think it can be done and i would hate to be part of the team that said no there's it, it's a no-go at this point i think it can be done and we're determined to make it work not just for this coalition but for the mere belief of a better future for this country and how is it possible, uh, Deputy uh, Foreign Minister Dan Roll, to govern a country, and not just any country, but uh, one that is uh, as complicated as ours without a Knesset majority and with a coalition constantly on the brink? Is, it, uh, is this atmosphere conductive uh, to pushing through a budget and other tasks uh, facing the, the government? In your uh, crystal ball, do you see the government uh, lasting until summer 2023 when Yair Lapid is scheduled uh, to switch jobs with Bennett and become a prime minister? Yair Lapid, if you know, I'm, I'm saying it uh, to, to who's uh, don't know, is uh, your, uh, the leader of your party, Yeshatid. Well, um, Ben, you know better than I do that, you know, I would be a fool to to make any kind of prophecy about the future in Israeli politics because you know things shift and change by the hour. However, I think we do have, uh, you know, when you try to predict something, you usually go back in history and see the results so far. And I think we do have a good track record so far. Yes, we've had uh, obstacles on a weekly basis. And yes, things are very shaky. And obviously, it's not ideal to have such a narrow coalition. But, you know, we did pass the former budget and we did make a lot of things work. And when I look back at the previous year, I see that despite, you know, constant challenges on the political level, we managed to reboot the country, the economy. We are also doing a good job at mending the internal rift in our society. Our society is a 
deeply hyper-polarized society, not unlike many other countries uh, post-COVID. And I, this is why, uh, also in relation to my uh, previous answer, this is why this government is crucial and historical because we make it work despite difficulties. And I do believe we can keep on making it work. Uh, and we know how to do politics, but for us, you know, doing the politics is about um, creating stability and maintaining this government. It's not the end goal, it's our means. And I think this is also what differentiates us in many ways from the former government. Okay, let's move uh, on to the issues uh, with which you deal as a deputy prime minister. Israel is facing another wave of terrorism, which is creating major public relations uh, challenges, such as the crisis uh, after the killing of Palestinian journalist Shirin Abu Akhle. How do you uh, sum up your handling of this uh, tragic event, especially after police attacked the mourners of, uh, at Abu Akhle's funeral in Jerusalem? Just a year ago, we had the crisis over Israel's uh, demolition of a building in Gaza City that it said housed the offices of Hamas, but also the office of the Associated Press. Our podcast guest last week, strategic communications expert Yarden Vatikai, called it a tsunami of tens of thousands of digital keyboards operating against Israel simultaneously around the world. And I'm asking you, in the foreign ministry, how do you deal with all, with all this? Well, I have to say that Yarden is right. We are, despite having a bit of bigger budget now and having new representatives around the world, we are definitely out-budgeted and outnumbered uh, by our enemies. Uh, so what this uh, uh, makes us do is uh, rely harder on the facts and making the facts accessible. You know, at, you know, a few years ago, like, in, I don't know, like a decade back, you needed to um, talk to reporters in traditional media in order to set the narrative straight. Nowadays, false narrative can erupt from all over social media, and it makes it so easy for people to just spread, you know, false information and fake news. So our job, we have our job cut out for us. But I think that the two, in, the, the two incidents are fairly different. The taking down the AP building was part of, uh, was during guarding of the walls and was very much justified. I think that what my predecessors should have done differently was to uh, highlight the context, the, the facts about what went down in that building and how Hamas used that building in order to initiate terror attacks. And I think that was the part missing. Uh, with the unfortunate death of uh, Shirin Abu Akhle, um, the thing is that it was unintentional and no one knows till this very day who did it. The thing is that we immediately, once it happened, we immediately reached out to the Palestinian Authority and asked them, let's do a joint investigation. We have nothing to hide. We want to, you know, get down to the truth. Uh, but they declined and they refused to do so till this very minute. And I, you know, that raises a question of why on one hand you declare uh, the IDF soldiers as murderers of the reporter, and on the other hand, you refuse to do an investigation that is unbiased with the rest of the world, with the United States, with us. So, you know, it raises questions. And so we immediately took action because at that morning we looked online, we looked on traditional media, and we saw 
a false narrative evolving about Israeli not just killing her supposedly, but murdering her. And we, in, we immediately uh, took action and changed the narrative. And sometimes changing the narrative is not like an ideal narrative, but we did it again. We did what is right. We changed the narrative in the majority of the world to we don't know who killed her. We never tried to change the narrative to a false to another false narrative. We actually wanted to showcase the truth. And now we still urge the Palestinian Authority to do this investigation so we can get to the bottom of this. Okay, so uh, tell us uh, a little about the new strategy in Israel's uh, information and public diplomacy, especially in light of uh, last year's change of governments, both in Israel and in the United States. It's no secret that uh, with the democratic Biden administration, Israel needs to take a different approach than in the days uh, when uh, we, it enjoyed an uh, unlimited free pass under Trump. What changes have you uh, introduced in adapting to this new reality? Well, you know, Ben, as a liberal myself, you know, uh, being married to my husband and having our two amazing kids, um, it, it hurts me. It pains me to see how in, in certain circles, uh, maybe more so in progressive circles, as you said, uh, Israel is not getting any credit for the tremendous work that we are doing with universal values such as women empowerment, uh, LGBTQ rights, um, global warming, innovation, uh, humanitarian aid, like we were the first ones on ground with uh, in Ukraine and for, uh, to build a field hospital. And I feel like it's not about telling a different story, it's about closing the gap between what certain liberal and especially progressive circles think of Israel and how liberal we are and to what we actually do. For example, because you know, our, we call it the government of change because we did change the prior priorities on many things. For example, we canceled the ban on gay people, on gay men um, being able to donate blood just a few months ago. We are the first country in the world. Israel is the first in the world to do that. And it's quite remarkable. And you know that blood donation is a big deal in Israel. We donate over a thousand units of blood every day in Israel. So, you know, it shows progress. Are things perfect? No. But I think that uh, I think that we're doing tremendous work. And I think it's time for the progressive circles to acknowledge the fact that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict doesn't derive from the work that we do with a lot of values that they care, care for. Interesting. Uh, let's, uh, let's look at the issues themselves. We all know that the most uh, volatile, sensitive, and dangerous place in this region, and maybe beyond, is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Israel's Arab friends are constantly warning us that any violation of Muslim freedom of worship and rioting on the Temple Mount is a casus belli. Have you changed the language that's used to explain the Israeli position on this issue? And what about the issue of settlements, which the United States administration opposes so strongly? In Israel, no one talks about the evacuation of settlements anymore. But in the Western world, hundreds of thousands of Israelis are still seen as illegal settlers. 
Well, Ben, I think that there's a new narrative evolving in the Middle East and, you know, all together with the Abraham, Abraham Accords and also specifically here. And I think it's, it's a fight. It's an ongoing war between extremists and moderates. And that is also part of the terminology. I think that the world still thinks of, you know, of the last few weeks in, uh, in Temple Mount as, um, as Jews and Arabs. But the truth of the matter was that we were very uh, clear on preserving uh, worship freedom for all religions all throughout these weeks. And the ones that were trying to hijack it, to hijack Al-Aqsa and trying to, to um, ignite a whole riot in the region were extremists were Muslim extremists. And that was not just against our police forces, that was also against the moderate Muslims who just wanted to practice their religion. So I think there's a shift also in that, but there's a bigger shift. There is a methodological, methodological shift because right now I think, and this is the way we operate, I don't think we should tell one story of the state of Israel because um, you lose sight of many wonderful aspects of Israel. We are a very diverse society. And for the majority of the time, it works. This is something that people overlook at, you know, when they don't visit or live here. Most of the time it works. When you go to Ajami Beach in Tel Aviv and you see all these young hipsters from the southern parts of Tel Aviv, uh, together with all covered up Arabic Muslim women with their kids, it seems normal. It's something that you and I know, you know, have known for so long, but this is an image that the world just is not aware of. We are now not doing the main part of telling the story. I changed the priorities in a way that now the majority of the way is, has been um, transferred to the people. I trust the people of Israel to tell their own individual stories that shine a light on our society and on our state and on our government's policies. And, you know, I'm not afraid one bit. I mean, I don't need all kinds of messaging that is rehearsed and, and you know, analyzed. I, I trust our people that they know how to tell the Israeli story. And in the past also, uh, the majority of the story was in context of defense and security issues. And, you know, there is more to Israel than generals telling about defense issues, although it's a main part and it's very crucial. but I'm, I'm just as interested in the story of a young girl who, you know, who grows up in Israel and talks about her day-to-day -day lives. And so can we, millions of young women around the world learn about Israel and about how she has no, you know, no limitations and how the sky's the limit for a young girl in Israel. And that speaks volumes about our democracy and about our values and about our policies. So... The Israeli story is bigger than the story of the government, and it is mainly done organically on social media by citizens of Israel and Israel supporters. I liked uh, the Israeli story is bigger than the government. I liked it very much, I have to say. In, gen <laughs> in general, how do you rate Israel's information and public diplomacy capabilities? Relative to the past, after all, these are uh, important tools which uh, can play a strategic role in providing Israel with freedom to conduct important military operations or prevent security deteriorations. What should uh, we be doing that we're not doing now? I think you just said about uh, changing the, the whole concept. 
but uh, maybe talking about tools, technology, uh, uh, maybe using our uh, our uh, capabilities in cyber, etc. So I think that we now know the importance of public diplomacy, as you know, uh, in the past, and we still use it at times because, you know, in lack of a better word, but we used to call it Hasbara. And Hasbara means explaining. I think that inherently it's not the right word because we're not trying to explain our actions or to justify them. Israel is, is a state that goes by the rule of law. We do what, you know, what the law says. And when we go on operations, we do that in order to prevent terror. We don't do it just like that. This is also part of the false narrative that was around the unfortunate death of the reporter. The, the soldiers went to Jenin, which is the capital of terrorism, in order to prevent the next horrendous terror attack on innocent Israelis, not because they wanted to, you know, be part of a very conflicted situation. Um, so I think that first and foremost, we know that public diplomacy give us or strengthens the, the legitimacy of the state of Israel to defend itself. When we are uh, required to go and, and do an operation in Gaza, in order to stop the rockets from, you know, from flying over Israel and hurting innocent civilians. Uh, we do that and we realize that the minute we start, we're going to be facing with questions and we're going to be um, challenged by uh, different uh, UN entities and the international community. And therefore, public diplomacy is a very crucial tool in that aspect to provide us the oxygen we need in order to create a safe space for our citizens and to protect ourselves. But also public diplomacy is so much more. And I can give you the example of my tech initiative with the Abraham Accords that, is, uh, that, is, that aims to create a tech ecosystem for the region and do joint reskilling from people of, of you know, Bahrain and the Emirates and Morocco and Israel together. And this is one as another aspect of public diplomacy. It's not about defense and security. It's about creating people-to-people -people ties and, and making a brighter future for the moderate part of our region. And that is also crucial. But we need to look at new platforms because, like I said, in the past, we had traditional media. And then we had also social media. But one huge player in this aspect of creating uh, opinions and promoting information of all sorts is streaming platforms such as Netflix. So we also need to be sharing the Israeli story with all its complexities on Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus. And there's also the metaverse. You know, this is something that is now evolving and hopefully soon enough we'll be able to create the closest experience to visiting Israel. It might be an online VR tour, it might be uh, a game, it might be uh, meeting Israelis uh, in, the meta in the metaverse. And, you know, post COVID, I realized that we have to create new opportunities to share the Israeli experience, because we just, you know, experienced two years of almost no delegations coming in. Yeah. We all know that celebrities can have a major impact in these days of social media. You just, just referred to it. In many cases, they automatically come out in favor of the underdog. In our case, it's the Palestinians. Uh, 
Bella Hadid, for example, will obviously support the Palestinians, but suddenly she's being joined by, by for example, Susan Sarandon, uh, who is not known for anti-Israel uh, views, and yet uh, she has accused the Israeli military of executing the Al, Al Jazeera journalist. How do you deal with such uh, instances? Do you try to call her, to talk to her, to send someone to, to talk to, to her? I, I'm, I'm asking you about Susan Sarandon because uh, during my uh, four years in New York City as Marif's uh, New York bureau chief, she was a neighbor of mine and she used to pet my dog. So I have a, <laughs> a warm uh, place in my heart for, uh, for her and she's also a great uh, actress. She is a wonderful actress. Maybe you should call her, but... Um... <laughs> But I, no, or, or my it, it dog, would be to, or your dog, yeah. yeah. But it would be fair to say that it's it's a battle between narratives, and Israel has always had enemies, and we always have enemies. I mean, there's no way we're going to reach a zero enemies or zero opposing people to Israel situation. So if you look back, you know, sometimes not writing about Israel and the conflict that's also. Uh, a good way to look at things. And when you look back, just a year back, in Guardian of the Walls, you could have noticed uh, dozens of Bela Hadid influencers and dozens of actresses such as Susan Sarandon. And nowadays you have far less. So that's also something that goes to show the advancement we've made. But um, I'm not here, and this is also quite the shift from some of my predecessors. I'm not here to, to you know, butt heads with our haters and enemies. I think that we should uh, reach out to them and we usually do. Uh, we try to reach out to different circles of that person. Uh, we do all kinds of public diplomacy uh, via our representations there. Um, but I think that the bigger picture shouldn't be missed out on. And that is that the majority of the world is just misinformed or just doesn't know enough about Israel. So instead of wasting time on a few that love, that hates us. And as you said, Bela Hadid identifies as, as Palestinian. I mean, the odds of her becoming an Israeli supporter uh, are slim to none, but there are hundreds like her uh, that we can uh, reach out to and provide context to what we do and provide information and talk to them about things that matter to them so they can know more about Israel. So that's also part of the way we, the way we do things now. I don't think that fighting Bela Hadid online, you know, um, is very, is the best dignified way for the Israeli government. I think that focusing on the other people and on educating the world about Israel and our actions would be a better way to do it. Okay, you're considered uh, an opinion and influence uh, leader in the LGBT community in Israel. You recently received extensive and flattering coverage in Politico. How do you define the condition of uh, LGBT rights in Israel? On one hand, Tel Aviv brands itself as a global gay capital. On the other hand, Israel is becoming increasingly conservative and religious. Only this week, a gay pride parade in the town of Netivot was canceled after threats to the lives of its organizers. Uh, are the challenges to the LGBT community in Israel growing, or is the community in a more advanced place uh, than it uh, ever has uh, in terms of rights and uh, personal freedoms? 
Um, it's, I can definitely say that we're in the best place uh, we've been uh, you know, in our history of the LGBTQ uh, community in Israel. It's not a perfect place. We do need to keep on doing work. And you know, history shows all around the world that even if you gain uh, advancements and if, and if you gain some rights, you have to safeguard them. You shouldn't be taken uh, rights for granted. And I keep telling people that. I tell them, even if we've achieved something, don't take it for granted because rights can be taken, not by us, but you know, we, we, no one is around forever. But I do think, and as someone who is raising a family here in Israel and has kids in the public uh, education system, uh, I think that things are uh, doing you know, we are doing tremendous things right now. And yes, Nativot is awful, but I want to provide context. That's the first year ever that someone has tried to do a pride event in Nativot. We've experienced similar things in Bechemish two years ago, and now things are just routine. So the first year in certain places can be difficult, but that's part of the involvement. That's, that's part of, of, you know, creating change. But Tel Aviv, is no longer the, the only gay capital. It may be the gay capital, but it's not the only place for gay people to live. And I think that what, what is best shown on ground is that life is stronger than politics. You know, people get married, and yes, we cannot get married in Israel yet, but we can uh, get married outside and then have all the rights of a, of a married couple here. So people get married, people have kids, and they create a new reality. And you have a young couple, and they want to, you know, they have kids and now they want to move back to Natania or Hadera because as any other couple, they want to get help from their, you know, parents because it's not that easy to raise kids. And so they move back to Natania. And then there's not a, maybe there's not a big gay, gay scene in Natania. So they go to their kindergarten teacher and they talk to her and then they create a special event maybe for families and five families come and the next year 20 families come and it's a whole different scene uh, than in Tel Aviv. It's not this huge pride parade. It's a family, it's a gay family's picnic and it's, you know, every city chooses a way to celebrate pride that, you know, suits the, the, the people there and the culture of that, that specific city and I think this is which shows that life is stronger than politics and we're headed in the right direction. Deputy Foreign Minister Idan Rol, it was a pleasure and very interesting. We thank you very much for joining us here in On Israeli Now Monitor. Thank you, Idan. Thank you very much, my pleasure. We'll take a short break and come back with some final thoughts. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and Normal Sup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Almonitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation.
Thank you for staying with us. The first part of this uh, very interesting conversation with the uh, Deputy Foreign Minister General was focused uh, in the political drama in Israel. While we were chatting on Sunday, uh, there was a meeting, a dramatic meeting between uh, alternate uh, Prime Minister Yair Lapid and Foreign Minister, and this uh, quitting uh, Knesset member Jida uh, Rinawi Zoabi from Meretz. And uh, after we finished this uh, conversation, the announcement was that uh, she's uh, staying in the coalition. So the drama is actually behind us, but uh, it's not over yet because uh, we, we still have in this uh, very fragile coalition uh, another new drama on a daily basis. And Idan Rol said, that uh, this temporary resignation by uh, Rinawi Zoabi uh, had quite a big impact and uh, he feared that if she decides to quit the coalition, the coalition it will uh, endanger the whole experiment of uh, Arabs and Jews together in the same coalition for the first time in history. Right now we can, uh, we can say uh, coalition is over it but uh, it's still very early to, to call and the obstacles are coming uh, one after the other on a weekly basis. So the coalition is very shaky, said it all, but it is not ideal. But despite these constant challenges, uh, we are, he said, uh, are doing well. We passed the budget. Uh, the, the Israeli society is very complicated. We know it but we have to fight uh, to go on and, and actually live this uh, dream alive. Then uh, we moved on to uh, talking about uh, what we call in Hebrew Hasbara. And uh, Idan Rol said that uh, he agreed with, uh, with our guest from a week before, Yerden Vatikai, that said that Israel has to fight all the time, a constant uh, war uh, with with uh, tens of thousands of, uh, of people that are sitting uh, behind their keynotes and their uh, computers and their cell phones and working against Israel. And we are, as I said, out-budgeted and uh, outnumbered by these enemies, but we have to go on and we have to fight. He gave an, an example with uh, what we had actually a year ago in the operation garden of the guardian of the walls in gaza when the idf uh, uh, hit a tower uh, that among other offices contained uh, the office of the associated press and there was a lot of criticism uh, around the world and idan Rol said that uh, taking this tower out uh, was justified the part that was missing in the in the equation was the information uh, that this house, uh, this tower housed the uh, Hamas uh, infrastructure and terror offices, and uh, it was actually self-defense. But in the case of uh, the killing uh, or the tragic death of uh, Shirin Abu Akleh, the Palestinian journalist, uh, we were ready on the spot, said Idan Rol, to an uh, unbiased investigation, but the Palestinians declined this idea. So what do they have to hide? And he said that uh, the same morning of the event, we recognized uh, 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 
what happened and uh, we agreed uh, uh, to any uh, investigation and uh, we, we recognized also the false narrative in the media that Israel murdered uh, this uh, journalist and we, we tried to fix it, not that we are innocent, but we cannot know right now who killed it because she was in a, in a place of a lot of fire from all sides. Uh, by the way, a Palestinian gunmen shot in this uh, event thousands of rounds. And uh, so the only way to prove, uh, maybe take responsibility, is to have an, an investigation. And we gave it a, a fight, it, uh, according to what he said. Then we, we moved to talk about liberalism. Uh, and Dan Rolls said that uh, we're trying to close the gap between the image of Israel in the eyes of uh, American liberals and reality. And, uh, and, and he said that a lot of the issues of the liberal issues, human rights, LGBT rights, uh, are very, very uh, advanced now in Israel and we're working very hard on it. And uh, the mission is the, to show it and prove it to the world that Israel is not what people think. He also described the work that he is uh, investing in uh, changing the, the, the international or, 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 the, or the media uh, system uh, or the, the ways the, the foreign ministry is working uh, to, to fight this Hasbara war uh, in the world. And the, the tech uh, that he's trying to, to, to bring inside this uh, mechanism and the, the initiative uh, within the Abraham Accords to create a, a people-to-people ties, uh, people from Israel that will uh, be connected through technology uh, with people from the Gulf and uh, learn about each other, etc. And uh, he hopes that uh, this government will give him enough time in office. We are not one year yet since it was established uh, to try and, and make a difference. Right now, I don't know if this hope is uh, realistic, but at least for Sunday and Monday, the coalition, the Bennett-Lapid coalition is still alive. I hope you found this conversation interesting and as usual, I hope to find you here uh, next uh, week in the same place and the same time on Israel in Almonitor. I'm Bank speaking Tel Aviv. Take care and bye-bye.